0: get ready oh dang it that's really hard
1: (laughs) all all four people (laughs) all right so is everybody gonna be able to like chime in or do you just like mute everybody
2: they are automatically muted and Uh, then we can have q a in the chat
1: cool right on
2: but when it's a small enough group i like when people like pop in
1: Oh, hi, Ruda and Adam. <laughs> hey, how's it? Oh,
3: oh yeah. Right on. Hello.
2: Hi, everyone. Hi, Joray. Hi. All right.
0: So, since we're live, and since we're live on here, and we're- we're live on Facebook, and it's 5, oh, it's 4.59. Let me know when we want to get started.
1: Oh, that's Go ahead, pretty good bio for being on a sailboat. Look at that. Such a steady camera. Wow. Amazing.
2: <laughs> Adam, amazing.
1: I got so Nyanoah Thompson got... in the back steering, so just telling Nyanoah to keep them straight. <laughs>
3: Hey Duray, how are you? Good.
2: Just you know, going through the global systemic issues. <laughs> are you taking a break from HPU?
1: Uh, no, full speed ahead with summer summer classes, some directed studies. So no stopping.
2: Cool. Lauren, All I right. think we can get started.
0: All right, that's what I was gonna say. Okay. All right. Aloha everybody. My name is Lauren Blickley. I am the Hawaii Regional Manager with Surfrider Foundation. Uh, I started, I guess, in March 1st, and then we had a global pandemic. So it's been a fun couple of months in this position um, and getting to work with Doré very closely and very excited that we can uh, bring this event to you guys and having such an incredible panel of speakers this evening to really dive into the story of plastic. And this documentary, which really did honestly take a deeper dive than probably any of the documentaries that have been published thus far on the plastic pollution issue um, and taking it to, I think levels that people haven't necessarily thought about before. Uh, The plastics issue has obviously grown over the the past couple of decades, Uh, but we're focused a lot on, on things like ban the straw, ban the bag, right? Which have their place and their time and have been really important But this really started diving into these connections um, between our plastic pollution issue, the oil industry, um, poverty, uh, social justice issues, uh, and a lot of other things that intimidation factors, uh, pulling the blind eye over consumers, lying to consumers, right? And uh, really getting at some of these deeper issues. So thank you guys for joining us this evening and our amazing panel, that we have. I'm going to introduce you guys first and then uh, we'll get started with their stories. So tonight we have Kahi Pakaro who is the co-founder of Sustainable Coastlines and he is now the director of Parley Hawaii. We have Marissa Miller who is representing our youth voice. Ooh, ooh, go Marissa. And she is the president of the Cal Poly Surfrider Club. Good job. And then we also have duration Shin, who is our uh, chapter coordinator of the Oahu Surfrider Foundation chapter. And I want to start off with, start with you, Kahi, and because this is a whole story of plastic, uh, telling your story, each one of you sharing your stories, because there's a reason why all of us are here tonight, and that's because we all have a personal connection uh, with plastic pollution, and we've all gotten involved in this topic from a lot of different perspectives. So... Kahi, start us off with your story. How did you get involved? Why Plastic?
1: Well, first off, thank you, Lauren and Surfrider, for this opportunity to to be here. Um, So from my story, if you were to ask me 15 years ago if I thought I'd be here, I would say, hell no. Um, I was into real estate development and uh, was really focused on financial arbitrage as it's related to financing big deals around real estate so um, the environment wasn't really something I even thought about um, uh, so it's, I think what's what's really a cool takeaway is that you could be one place in in one one part of your life and quickly make a, a 180 to fully change who you are um, so and it really takes some some type of life-changing experience for that to happen and for me it was just seeing the problem firsthand and then making that connection that i was the problem um, and then realizing that if i wanted to provide um, a future of hawaii that i was lucky enough to grow up in that things had to change uh, so i started sustainable coastlines hawaii with seven other friends we pitched in 50 bucks hosted our first cleanup in late 2010. And uh, to that point, like I had really only been to, I think only one other beach cleanup in my life. So I didn't have much experience. Um, all I knew was that the cleanup I went to was really, really fun. There was beer. Um, and it, there was a band. So I was like, okay, how do we replicate that? And uh, uh, so we did, except for the beer at the beach. Uh, we debated that later. Um, so we we made the beach cleanups fun. We had over two hundred people show up to the very first one, and the number one question was, "When is the next cleanup?" So we just parlayed our success on the first one, and ten years later, Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii remains one of the biggest cleanup groups in the state, and also one of the biggest in the world. So um, I'd say like that, where I'm where I am today right now, I'm extremely grateful. Um, everything that happened to me prior led me to this point, but I would have never guessed that I would be here as a result of my past.
0: Thank you, Kahi. I don't think I realized that. Look, see, see where we get when we tell each other stories. Uh, and I think, you know, I agree. It's, it's interesting where we end up. And every time I tried to make a 10-year plan and it gets that 10 years, I'm never at that plan, but it was a good plan when I had it. So Marissa, um, what's your story? How, why plastic pollution? How did you get here?
3: Hi, Um, yeah, thanks for having me as well. Um, I got pretty interested in this whole issue when I was pretty young, I think before I could really understand it. Um, My parents told me that we went camping when I was in like second grade, and I vaguely remember this, but they were like, yeah, you went down to the beach and you were really surprised by all of the trash that was on the beach and you started picking it all up and apparently I had like rallied all of my siblings and their friends who were camping with us to like come down to the beach and like come pick up all of this trash that was like floating in with the tides and I was asking so many questions and just really like surprised by what I was seeing and witnessing because it just like more kept washing up with every wave and I think that that really like stuck with me from a really young age and I around the same time, um, Jack Johnson actually visited our school and came to like do a little mini concert and talk a little bit about um, sustainability issues for Kukua Foundation. And um, I think that was kind of like the beginning for me. And that planted the seeds of all of these like issues in my mind. Um, And throughout my education, I was fortunate enough to learn a lot more about these problems. And experience them firsthand like Kahi was saying um, and also just meet a lot of really inspiring people who are doing great work that encouraged me to continue to be involved in it Um, and I had the opportunity to start a club while I was in high school and then now lead the Cal Poly club uh, for surf riders so just kind of accumulation of events over time um, and a lot of encounters with really inspiring people who are doing great work that just kind of like really pulled me in to be involved in the in the issue and in solving it.
0: Thank you Marissa and I do want to circle back to that in a little bit, you know, talking about when I was a kid in the 80s and 90s we'd go to the beach with my parents and we we wouldn't pick up trash. You know, that's we didn't do it. It wasn't there. And I think that's a really important point that definitely circle back on with this generation today you know, your generation and the generation that's going to come after, like they're growing up with more plastic than sand and crabs and everything else that you're supposed to find on your beach and just what that looks like and, and how that shifts the narrative as well. So we're re- really thankful to have your your voice here, your youth quote, your youth voice, all of us oldie moldies over here. We've been in this too long. And then finally, DeRay, Duration, can you share us
2: Share with us why plastic pollution, why you're here, how you got involved with this. Yeah, so a lot of people think I'm local just because I'm tan and Asian. But I'm actually from Pennsylvania. And I'm born and raised um, in kind of the greater Philadelphia area. And I think um, being so far from nature, I mean, it was like three or four hours to the closest beach. I never really was exposed to environmental issues or like a deep love or connection to nature. And I think the only environmental thing I remember when I was a kid was we were, we grew up kind of poor. And so we would buy napkins and cut them in half we like paper napkins and like fold them and cut them in half just to like save money. But it was also like a conservation thing. But yeah, so that was like really my own exposure. But when I moved to Hawaii in 2010, um, I really fell in love with nature, and it was quite immediate and profound. And from this place where I realized how important nature was and how healing it was to be in the presence of nature and the ocean, I was also, it was juxtaposed with this exposure to immense amounts of plastic and styrofoam I was seeing on the UH campus where I was a freshman. Um, And it really felt like it didn't make sense to me, it was like too paradoxical that these two things were happening, this beautiful nature and then this deep disconnect where there was all this litter everywhere. And so I kind of decided to switch my major from political science to sustainability studies pretty early on um, and focus all my energy on climate and environmental issues and solutions. Um, And got involved with, I found the Surfrider UH club who were, they were drinking beers at the campus bar um, and convinced them to try to ban styrofoam because that was the thing I was seeing more than anything. Um, and I hadn't even gone to my first beach cleanup at that point, but in the, during the campaign where we were trying to ban styrofoam at UH, I went to a surfider cleanup um, at Magic Island and I picked up so many plastic bags and forks and wrappers and water bottles, things that I was still using on a daily basis, um, and that's really when it clicked for me that I was part of the problem too, that instead of pointing fingers, that I needed to change my own life um, and get involved in a more authentic way by changing how I live my life and um, in that way, how I present myself as an activist, so that's really what got me started in the environmental movement.
0: Thank you, Dore. Um, I will say I feel like you are very authentic when it comes to walking the walk. And it's interesting you moved here and got started, started sort of finding that love for nature, right as Kaki was having fun at beach cleanup. So <laughs> interesting sort of overlap. And I glad that you touched on that. Um, so Kaki Duray and I, I think we first met in 2016. We're part of the Hawaii Marine Debris Action Planning, uh, which isn't as much fun as itself. <laughs> Uh, But it's a really good process and um, creating, you know, these plans and these actions for addressing plastic pollution on our shorelines. Uh, I got my personal start in plastic pollution because at the time I was working for a nonprofit who focused on marine mammals and saving, like essentially saving the whales. And as the outreach um, coordinator and, and conservation manager, I didn't know how to connect that issue to the general public. I mean, they come and they see whales and it's that, that immediate moment, but how do you really save the whales? And it was around uh, the time we were trying to pass our tobacco-free beaches and parks bill, And I was like, plastic pollution, that's our number one issue impacting a lot of these animals, like direct impact, right? Outside of climate change which is all connected. And so I started doing beach cleanups and some some small research studies on the island of Maui and then once getting a part of this bigger hui just realizing kind of what you're saying Duray it's like oh my gosh plastics is such an issue that's directly connected to the consumer. I can literally refuse a straw or refuse a fork or change the packaging or buy in bulk. I can do all of these things immediate and see such an immediate Um, impact and I you know that was something for me where it was just like this is a no brainer and um, getting into hopefully we'll have time tonight in this discussion to get into some of those. um, We will we'll get into some of those action items Uh, for those of you who are joining us, there is the chat box so if you're joining us on zoom you can chat on zoom uh, and you can also since we're Facebook Live, you can post a comment and I'll try to grab it there if you have some questions. But the first thing I wanna dive into is uh, specifically just taking a moment you know, to recognize the fact that, that racial and social justice issues are at our collective forefront right now, and rightly so. And this particular documentary did take an opportunity to dive into that. And so also, instead of just looking at plastic pollution, from westernized and from uh, a mainland and United States perspective, it really uh, took us through the entire journey of plastic from the beginning to end. And before everyone jumped on or having a conversation, and I want to start this off with Kahi because one of the things that this particular documentary brought up uh, is these marginalized communities are the ones who are bearing the burden of plastic pollution. So, Kahi, you, you had had some good thoughts and, and just good discussion. I want to turn it over to you because um, you've also been directly involved with some of these communities and visited them. So I was wondering if you could sort of speak to to that and and how this burden of plastic is so heavy on, on these marginalized communities and how there's this intersect between the environmental and, and racial justice uh, issues.
1: Right on, well, thanks for that question. I I think what uh, the first thing that we're having a reckoning with is, is the fact that environmentalism hasn't taken enough focus on the social justice side of things. And like without social justice, we don't really have a true environmental movement. And this documentary, like it really helped begin shed light on that problem where you've got like the refineries and underserved communities. You've got the recycling facilities in the places with the lowest wages and, and like minimal if, if, or zero environmental protection agencies. Um, and uh, when we talk about how we get people to care about plastics, right? Like you gotta find the right angles. Like some people don't care about the dolphins or, or the whales or the turtles, right? some people don't care about anything other than themselves. And then it's a, it's a health issue. It's like, hey, you're, you're affecting your own health. And then there's some that are like, actually just don't care about either, but are more empathetic towards others. And I think that was a really cool angle for us to really focus on and that didn't really get much attention at all in the past in documentaries. and. I'd be more than willing to bet that the next video that comes out by these producers um, will really pour more attention on the social construct of our use of plastics and how it's a continual version of colonialization and and the burden it's taking on people that are marginalized and that's people of color. So um, that was kind of like, I wasn't quite exactly what we were talking about earlier, but I, I, I was really excited to see that that was such a, a new part of the conversation that I've recognized around the world through my work and just surfing. Um, but it's, it, was, it was refreshing to see others bringing it to light. And it's, and it's, it's not just about the turtle with a straw on his nose.
0: And I think that's a really good point, right? Because where we've seen, I'd say US mainland based in terms of raising awareness about the plastic pollution, turtle and snows has been very important to raise and pull and tug at the heartstrings, but banning plastic bags, banning plastic straws, these really specific consumer items that most of us I'd venture to say who are tuning in and watching this have done, right? We've taken that step. And I think you're right that this is going so much deeper and showing how they're specifically marketing and specifically creating products, right? To target at these low income, these poverty stricken areas. So you are buying toothpaste in single use. You are buying shampoo in single use in these sachets. And I was wondering if you could, just touched really quick, because I think you were one of the first that I, I heard, I was like, oh yeah, I've got all my reusables. And you were like, it's packaging. And I was like, oh. So, you know, just kind of speaking to that packaging piece for a second.
1: Well, you know, I, I always like, I get pulled with these conversations a lot. And, and when people start caring, they, they first fall into the basic tropes of, of plastic pollution advocacy. And that's like the island, the size of Texas. That's that's a trash island. And then it's, it's, we should just ban all single-use plastics and that's going to solve our problems. And then it's a, it's not us. It's, it's, those eight, it's those five Asian countries that contribute 90% of the trash in the ocean. And you're like, wait, don't you realize that they're making our stuff? And then we're trying to sell them our stuff in smaller packaging because they can't afford such a big bottle. Like these are this problem is coming out of those countries but those that those, those companies that are making that trash are our western Western companies. Um, so it, it, the packaging is a major issue but it goes it's beyond packaging like if we want to get to the root of the problem it's our it's those in the boardroom it's, it's those holding stock in those companies and it's that this construct that we always need these short-term gains and shareholder returns that, we're stuck in this vicious cycle of continuing trying to get bigger margins and better return for the for the shareholders at the expense of the environment and people so we have a the, what we're going through right now with, with BLM is relevant and and it's and it's like all linked together and it, it's i hope that more of us start understanding that we're not going to solve this problem by banning a straw it's so much bigger And to me, it really gets down to the crux of of removing, you know, corporate influence on our elections and on our politicians.
0: Thank you, you always speak such good truths, Kahi. Uh, And in thinking about that, you know, one of the biggest things when you're in this plastic pollution issue is this people versus product, right? And it's not a product issue, it's how people deal with the product at the end. So one of the things, and Dore, I want to turn this over to you, is this whole idea behind recycling, incineration, uh, and and Oahu does utilize incineration. So I just wanted you to speak to that a little bit and maybe clarify some things and and speak to the fact that the incineration, this waste to energy, that they put this beautiful, lovely, nice label on it, but what is the reality behind that?
2: Yeah, that's so important because I I think we all fall victim to that when we first get involved in these issues, because that's all we're hearing. And I think we all really have to be cognizant of how brainwashed we all become just by inheriting the system that we inherit. And um, if you look at, if you follow the money to where this narrative around don't litter, just recycle, you know, those are the two only action items you ever need to think about. That narrative comes from companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Unilever. These are the companies pumping out single use plastics at such extraordinary rates um, that they have so much money to pump into false advertising campaigns that put all the responsibility on the consumer to just not litter and to just recycle. And don't look at us, the ones who are giving you no other options. And so um, that's why you also see these companies associated with and advocating for incineration and recycling as a main focus around this issue. And um, yeah, so if you just look at that, and then you look at this fact that, and this is something that I learned from Nicole Chatterson, the director of Zero Waste O'ahu, this concept of the wasteberg. So if you think about an iceberg, where you can't actually see most of the iceberg, all you're seeing is the very tip. Um, It's the same with waste and the actual statistic um, that that researchers have found is that for every one pound of trash or plastic that we throw away, like a bottle, um, there's 70 pounds of trash upstream that were produced and wasted that we can't even see. That just the water, the transportation, the oil, all the stuff required in extracting, producing, and transporting Um, that piece of material to you. So I think it's so important to move away from pointing fingers at each other, blaming each other for using one piece of plastic and really going back to where are these things coming from? What are the companies that are responsible that are trying to have us pitted against each other as individuals? Because if we tackle the companies, um, we're gonna be able to solve these problems at such a faster rate than if we just continue to blame consumers and try to consume, um, try to change one straw at a time. So it really is bigger than that, and I think that also connects to Bill forty, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And any any effort to pass a plastic legislation anywhere in the world, you have the same industry lobbyists from American Chemistry Council, American Beverage Association, the food industry association, the restaurant associations. It's always the same people. Um, that are against real policy change. And so it always does, like Kahi said, go back to our system of capitalism um, that's uncontrolled and unregulated. And I really think that goes at the root of the problem and that will also tackle racial injustice um, and all the other intersectional issues that our world is facing. So I always feel like money and politics um, is always the foundation of everything.
0: And Marissa, before I get to you, I want to pick up on something Dore was just talking about, which were the bills and the American Chemistry Council, right? Um, What was really interesting is here on Maui in 2012, we passed the uh, Tobacco-Free Beaches and Parks Bill to try to address cigarette butts, right? And cigarette butt litter, plastic, number one plastic littered. Um, And that went through our county council in about like four months. Like it was really fast. And I was like, great, I love this. So like, I love policy. This is, this is so fun and look, we're, we're making all these changes. So a couple months later, we tried to pass our polystyrene bill and that came up and that took us, I mean, it had been off and on, so probably a total of 10 years, but from 2012, it took us at least four years to get that passed because here I was like the cigarette and tobacco lobbyists didn't come out and try to ban our tobacco ban but all of a sudden i'm standing out there getting ready to talk about polystyrene why we should ban this think we're gonna get it banned um and this this one guy walks into one of our meetings and says hey i'm tom from the american chemistry council and i think that's when it hit me that oh god they've got like american chemistry council is here on maui fighting our local bills like we're on their radar now um and not i think that's when this issue got so much bigger for me and the money, the power, the intimidation, right? That they have um, surrounding all of this, and to to have and oh, Tom also mentioned that he was from California. So here they are, flying in lobbyists to our islands to dictate what we're doing, um, and that was a whole new avenue for me. And again, to really see how this is so so much bigger than me <laughs> or, or this one bill. Um, and I think that was, a. am glad they brought that up in this documentary, The Intimidation Factor. Um, Kahi, um, uh, Marissa, this one's kind of open to all of you but I am interested, not that I was ever getting death threats or anything like that, but just again, to see the power and the level that they were coming at uh, and the sophistication and the arguments they had and how they were able to so manipulate it because they are, they're professionals at this. So I'm just curious um, if you guys had had any experiences with with sort of that level of, of the power too, because that's kind of what we're talking about right now is that uh, politics and power and money and it goes back to oil, right? So I'm gonna just open it up to you guys.
1: Okay, well, I, I can, I can speak specifically to the American Chemistry Council. Um, I actually went to a conference once that was for the plastics industry um, and uh, I showed up with two buckets of microplastic that we picked up off of Kailua Beach and um, more or less made myself known that I was the, the <laughs> I, guess, I guess the person that probably shouldn't be there, there to create a, a, a bit of a tussle. And make my voice be heard. And it, if you want to shut me up, you got to kick me out. Um, but you know, they actually listened. And uh, the the guy that's in that video uh, in the movie, um, he was the, he's the VP of, of, of the American Chemistry Council for for plastics. Uh, Steve, I think, was his name. We actually actually went and had some beers with him, and. Uh, um, what they more or less were saying is, is that everything we're saying is, is correct. Um, but they have, they have a set of clients, you know, they represent their clients um, and their clients' interests in continuing to make the amounts of money or not, or, or more money than they're already making. And the success of, of the American Chemistry Council is based on making sure that the money keeps flowing. So what Hawaii represented, I was like, why do you care about Hawaii? We're a tiny little state in the middle of the ocean. We, 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 our consumers are are such a drop in the bucket. It makes no difference to you. Why are you spending the money in Hawaii to try to block these bills? And the reasoning they said was, well, it's a slippery slope. We can't afford the momentum. We, We can't have you guys pass something and then all of a sudden, other places think that they can pass something. Uh, and that was, I was like, oh, geez, I, I really hadn't thought about it that way. I, sh- I should have, but I get it. Um, it. It does like, I get it. I'm, I appreciate your honesty. Uh, and then I made him pay for the beers. So that like, these people, they're, they're humans, you know, maybe they don't have as much of a uh, empathetic soul, but I try to reason with their thinking and it, it's challenging to do so. Um, but in the end, they're trying to put maybe better food and lots more of it on their plate than others. Um, but they're looking out for their, their own survival and the survival of their clients. Um, so I have met with the Americas, American Chemistry Council and a bunch of the other um, organizations that, that push for this type of stuff. I've even had tussles with the uh, the Ocean Conservancy and the Keep America Beautiful campaigns and the Keep Hawaii Beautiful campaigns, so I I was never afraid. I was at first, but I I, I was inspired by this guy Stib Wilson. He was uh, actually the the co-director of the Story of Plastic. This was pretty much his project. Um, so the movie that we watched, we can thank Stib for this, and and I. I witnessed his activism in Jamaica at a UN conference when he in the middle of a conference just stood up on on his chair and he's a big boy like this isn't like these are these like conference chairs and I was afraid he was going to break it and he just like started yelling at the top of his lungs talking about why aren't we talking about the big, the big issue here and the fact that this whole conference is being funded by the people we as environmentalists are saying we need to shut down. We can't get our narrative through because you guys are taking money from the same people we are saying are the problem. Um, So I guess going back to the question, it's like the American Chemistry Council and these other organizations are willing to talk and negotiate to a certain extent, um, but in order to dismantle what they're trying to do, we can't, alienate them, we actually have to engage with them to a certain extent to try to understand where they're coming from and find the weaknesses in order to exploit them and, and get our our mission completed.
0: Thank you, Kahi. And this is why I always appreciate conversations with you because you just got such great insight. Doré, were you gonna
2: add, add on? I just wanted to tag on to say, I'm glad that that guy paid for your beers because all these lobbyists make six figures. And they, I actually was in a private conversation once with one of the major lobbyists here, um, who is usually you know an, op- an opposing force for the things that we fight for. And she told me privately that she can't let go of her salary and that she agreed with everything I said, like how he mentioned, um, around what's important but that there were so many things that we could find alignment on but that she couldn't publicly say that she supported them but in private she said yeah i definitely would support that i just can't i'm not allowed to say that in public and so it is important to to realize that these people are taking high-paying jobs to advocate for things that they often don't 100 percent align with um and not only that but they're also some of the top campaign contributors for local and national politicians and that these politicians are in bed with these lobbyists and so we have to address that level of corruption because when we fight for bills I mean when we I heard that 13 years ago they were fighting for a styrofoam ban and we weren't able to pass anything until this year bill 40 so that's 13 years of failure and every time I was in those rooms when I first got involved I was so upset every time because it always be like 50 to 100 people packing the room, youth and adults and families crying and upset about the plastic issue and that we need to address this. We support this bill. And one lobbyist, sometimes two that are like, we oppose this bill for these reasons and just speaking the way that they speak. And then the bill would die. And so the power of the people is completely lost in the fog of corporate influence. And so that's something that I really feel is important that we not only elect people that are not that are promising to not be bought out by money, um, but that we are able to see that influence clearly and and try to break through that as much as possible.
0: Thank you, Dorey. I saw Kaki, if you had something quick to add on, and then I was going to come to Marissa.
1: Like, I never had a helicopter land in my yard and kill my dog. How gnarly was that? That was- that was heavy. That was freaking heavy. But you know, those lobbyists are doing similar things in not not to us, but to the politicians that they elected. Like, if you want your job, this is what you have to do. It's all in the back rooms. They're just having these conversations and be like, we're gonna get you reelected. You just gotta do this. You gotta squish, squash this bill. And they've been doing that for decades. So yeah. That, that was that was gnarly in the in the movie when she said that I was like what whoa heavy
0: that was really heavy and she was in Texas too so um, <laughs> it was it was interesting because um, I feel like it sort of backfired on Maui when they had the American Chemistry Council come out because all of a sudden our county council is kind of like who are you Tom from California why are you coming in here and telling us how we're supposed to run our island so I thought that was interesting because he did provide the the local backlash against the bill with ammo and I think made it drag out longer like a couple years longer than it should have but I think in the end um, at least in in the county council we had at the time they were able to to see through that so yeah I guess if they're going to come lobby in Hawaii hopefully they're not watching this and they don't, they don't know our tactics. But Marissa, I wanted to turn it over to you a little bit, um, because you grew up in Hawaii, born and raised, and now have been in California. And just curious a little bit about that shift and that perspective, not only from, from a beach cleanup perspective and what you're finding on the beach, but also, you know, kind of not necessarily that you've gotten into a lot of the politics of it, but just the mindset. I mean, what, I guess just, just tell us what you've seen and feel and, and how that's been a little different or if there are any differences.
3: Yeah, um, I saw in the chat box that um, Christian was asking about our my interaction with like lobbyists or school administrators and stuff and kind of tagging on um, this conversation that's been happening around um, the resistance of like industry and lobbyists for the industry. Um, there's a really interesting documentary called The Murder of doubt that kind of breaks down the tactics used by the tobacco and the fossil fuel industry and how they spread misinformation in order to keep basically making profit off of um, all of these externalities that are affecting marginalized communities and all of us. Um, So that's just a really interesting documentary That if anyone wants to check that out. Um, But speaking more on the question you just asked, uh, I think there's a really interesting dynamic um, depending on where you are about people, people's perceptions of this plastic issue because obviously there are communities that are directly impacted by it that we saw in the film um, that are impacted by it on a level way beyond what we can even comprehend um, growing up here in Hawaii, obviously, but also like just the difference between here and California that I've noticed um, growing up here, like as I mentioned I saw like direct issues of plastic pollution and marine debris floating up on our beaches on the east side if you go over there like it's all you see it's all over the place and it's in massive quantities and it's hard to ignore but in California it's a little bit of a different story and I've noticed that through my involvement in organizing beach cleanups here versus there it's um, kind of harder to bring people to the awareness of how systemic the issue is and how it's a bigger problem than just littering, which is kind of what the film is touching on, um, that the the problem is in the whole supply chain. And you, you can make that connection pretty easily here if you go to a beach cleanup and you pay attention to what you're seeing and that the plastic is coming from all over the world and it's accumulating in these gyres and it's floating up on our shores and it's not just a litter problem, but in California, Most of the stuff that we find at our beach cleanups is litter, so it's really interesting just seeing people's perspectives of the issue depending on where they're coming from and what they've directly experienced and trying to bring people to a new awareness and draw connections between different aspects of the problem um, by educating them and talking to them about the issue. So that's been like an interesting experience coming, looking at the different, looking at involvement in this movement from two different places.
0: And you touch on cleanups and that was something that we were also talking about before and that this particular documentary sort of sort of touched on, but I want to dive into this discussion of, of beach cleanups a little bit because Kahi's coming from a place where he launched an organization that was 100% around these massive cleanups. Uh, Doray and Oahu chapter, the cleanups are big cleanups they are big events and Marissa you're saying that you organize cleanups um, with your student chapter. so. Cleanups are obviously a, a, a critical part of this, uh, but the documentary was also uh, so much of it, I think, I, I shouldn't say the documentary, so much of what we do now is focused on that cleanup, right? It's focused on banding straws and picking it up. So I, I would like to open this to each of you and um, it doesn't matter who, maybe Marissa, since since you're on it and talking, what is the role of beach cleanups? Because I, I felt like this particular documentary um, didn't, dive into it as much. We know there's some challenges with cleanups, but what do you what do you think the role of cleanups are? How do they play into this?
3: Yeah, um, I think beach cleanups are really important. Uh, it's usually how most people get involved in this movement in the first place. Um, everyone I know who's involved in this movement started with beach cleanups because it's the most tangible way to take action and it gets people interested because they get to go out there and spend time by the ocean with friends and community members and learn about the problem firsthand. Um, and although it's not necessarily the solution to any of this, by no means, um, but it is really important because I think people need to draw connections before they can really care about them and really dedicate time to um, solving them or at least addressing them in any way. So. I think beach cleanups are a great way for people to learn a little bit more about it, get educated, and also get connected and plugged into their community and the people who are working on these issues and addressing them in a more systemic way and in a more proactive way. Um, because without showing up to a cleanup or anything like that, it's it might be hard to like just step into this movement and like start being an activist about it because you have to understand the issue before you can care about it and you have to care about it before you can really do anything about it um so i think the role of beach cleanups is really that like the it's kind of like the open door to joining the movement i guess yeah and i'll
2: just yeah i'll just add that it's um like we were talking about earlier it's a gateway drug like marissa saying um and it really is that first step and i don't know if that wasn't an option for me when I was in college and, I, and my only option was to testify at the legislature if I would have even gotten involved. So I really think that beach cleanups are a palatable first step for people, even though amongst ourselves, we can kind of make fun of them as a band-aid. Um, and we do make fun of them actively. I even have a friend who made a song about it that's like, um, yeah, beach cleanups don't do anything. Sorry, you're not helping. But we all know that but it is that gateway drug it helps us grow our movement from the grassroots level and um, it's a funnel you know so we get way more people that way because people love going to the beach and then they're able to see because sometimes you can't actually see like when I first went to Magic Island you couldn't actually see what was in the rocks you really have to get down and like get into the crevices of the rocks and then you're like endless, endless amounts of um, plastic hidden or the microplastics that you can't see if you're just walking, Um, so I think it's really, really important to connect to the the problems and the solutions through that as a first step.
0: Ahi, I'm going to jump over to you in just a second, but you brought up an interesting point, DeRay. Um, when I was in college, I was a marine science major in Miami, and about halfway through, I know you've heard this story, um, Dore, but I was getting, I was so frustrated. I was like, why do I keep reading papers from the 1980s about climate change and coral bleaching and all of these issues, right? I was like, you know, why aren't we doing something? I got involved in this because I wanted to change, and then I ended up, at the Surfrider Club at the University of Miami, and the first thing we did, um, we were a, a fledgling club, and we hosted a beach cleanup. And only two people showed up, but it was the best beach cleanup I'd ever been to, and probably ever. Didn't have beer, coffee, but it it was like you said that action item. Like I finally felt okay. I'm taking action. You make such a good point that yeah, if people came, and we're like, okay, now you have to go testify in front of the ledge, like you know, that that is um, scary and very different versus, yeah, I'm going to be able to come out. So I, I like that you made that connection. Um, all right, Kahi, I'm ready. What What's the role of beach cleanups? Good and bad of beach cleanups. Give it
1: to me. Well, personally, for me, it, it was a beach cleanup that woke my ass up. So as part of paying it forward, I was like, okay, if that's what it took me to recognize the issue, which has now evolved to a continual like path of education to learn more about the subject, um, what is it gonna take others? So it's the it's the cleanup. And um, ever since then, I was like, I wanna give this experience to as many people as I can. Um, and uh, the trick is how do you get that many people out there? People don't really feel like they're making as much of an impact if there's only two people that show up. But if you get 1500 people, you don't feel like it's a Herculean task. You, you feel like there's other people like me. Um, there, there are others out there and I shouldn't give up. Um, and uh, the, the cleanup is just a really great experience to, to introduce the person and then to be the hub for them to bring in other initiated people to also learn. Because we, we see so much recidivism in these cleanups. like we see the same people year after year after year. And it's like, you know that this isn't the solution. And let's be honest, it's not the solution, but it is one of the most poignant solutions in the ability to wake people up. So even if we're not making a dent in actually cleaning up the mess because it's just going to be back, well, look at the amount of awareness that they create. It's priceless. And I think it's probably the most powerful tool that we have.
0: Um, And I'm glad that, and I I wanna take that and then shift it just a little bit because we wouldn't, again, of course, be in this issue of talking about cleanups if we didn't have such a consumer-based, throwaway-based society, right? And one of the things, that I want to draw back to Hawaii is you know they were talking in this documentary about uh, they're in India, and they were talking about, you know he said, we we used to have respect for materials, but we've lost that. We used to not have any of this because all of our materials you didn't throw away, right? Everything was every it was a resource. Um, and it, it got me thinking about here, right? and and Hawaii, because as an island, there, there was a time, not so very long ago, when we weren't throwing things away, right? And um, especially speaking, you know, and looking from that, that Native Hawaiian perspective as well. So, but today, and one of the tactics that the lobbyists had used uh, against our polystyrene ban was don't take our plate lunch. Right, and having this plate lunch packaged in styrofoam, and it was like, oh my gosh, if you take away the styrofoam, polystyrene packaging, you're you're taking away a piece of our culture. So, wondering if you guys could could all speak to that uh, a little bit. And and I did think, you know, we are this place that is so tied to not wasting and not being wasteful, but have yet, you know, is there a way we can get back to that, or or where do you sort of see that intersection with where we're at now?
2: I wanna speak to this just because it triggers me when I like think about that campaign, because it was like, you see this and if they they paid a local dude to hold up a styrofoam lunch and it just said, don't take away my plate lunch, there was no, there's no um, logic or, you know, it just it doesn't actually make sense. It's so ironic and it's so offensive because, uh, you know, Hawaiian culture was zero waste and, you know, there wasn't plastic and it's, and plastic is such a new thing that, the fact that that campaign was effective, I think was the most shocking to me because it was so clearly wrong and didn't add up, but the how effective marketing is on our minds, I think is really worth examining that people are so easily swayed by a poster or a meme. And oftentimes don't we don't wanna go through that process of critical thinking of like one step, would just take you to the conclusion that, oh, my plate lunch can be packaged in anything else other than styrofoam, like paper or compostables um, or anything. And so I think that's what's concerning to me. And and I think that's really what we're trying to um, cultivate is this this community of critical thinkers who care about things other than convenience. Um, And I do think that ultimately we're winning and that these lobbyist tactics are running really, really short. And we, we've been seeing that in the city council hearings and the state legislature, where in fact, even the politicians are starting to call out the lobbyists and saying, we're sick of your tactics. We're gonna do something this time around. And so that's been really inspiring. Um, and I just wanna send a message out um, that yeah, the lobbyists tricks, they're not gonna work anymore. Like we're, we're done, you know, and we're gonna win. So that's why we want bill 40 and we're gonna keep winning more. Tahi
0: or Marissa would you like to speak to that as well just kind of this idea of like zero waste is sort of just just central to our community um how can we get back there
3: yeah I would kind of tag on to what Daria was saying about like how important framing is um for these issues and like how how we define the problem and how we talk about or how we define the problem and how we frame the issue kind of determines how we talk about it and like how we argue about it so if we let like industry and lobbyists frame the issue in a way that's beneficial to them like we're never going to win the argument um so if the frame is like taking away plate lunch from like locals then yeah we're not gonna like it's gonna be hard to like argue with it but if we reframe the argument as that there's an alternative and that we can do things a different way and that we did do it a different way before styrofoam existed then I think it's a lot easier to like have that conversation and so yeah I just wanted to touch on like the importance of that and like putting a frame on the issue that is beneficial to what we're arguing for industry and lobbies kind of determine that for us Um, and then also just kind of touching on um, I'm not sure if I have this idea fully framed in my mind but uh, Kind of tying in like social justice issues uh, when we talk about like moving away from plastic pollution because sometimes plastic is the cheapest option um, for communities who may not be as wealthy um, or who may not have access to the alternatives yet um, so thinking about that and keeping that in mind when we're pushing for legislation and having options for providing alternatives to communities who may not be able to afford it and um just kind of like keeping that in mind is really important because people who don't think that they have access to the alternatives will probably side with that argument of like opposing a change um, until they realize that the resources would be available to them. And yeah, I guess just like always keeping, like keeping the diverse perspectives in mind when we're advocating for these things. Absolutely.
0: Thank you, Marissa. Uh, We just had a question come in, which is actually a question that I had on my list as well and trying to figure out where to fit it in. So I guess we're going to fit it in right now. Uh, So Trissa was asking um, and this discussion around COVID-19 and the CDC coming out with this statement, which hopefully you guys have seen and read, where essentially saying that single-use plastics are bettered, again, framing, shifting, driving the narrative um, essentially, right? And this whole idea of almost in a way, I guess, kind of capitalizing on that fear of COVID-19 to say that we need to to utilize single use plastics um, more. So curious about your guys' thoughts on that and how like I was showing you guys, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna get black for this, but this is, you know, the trail mix, we usually are able to get in bulk and we're not allowed to bring bulk bags right now. And I've even snuck them in and gotten in trouble. Um, and they're not even having this in bulk. It's already pre-packaged. Um, and my husband was the one who went shopping. So we're gonna have to talk about that later, but this is a major issue, right? And so all of the things that we used to buy, not packaged, not even talking about the single use stuff that the CDC is um. Really requiring us to use util- or saying that we should utilize now, but all of these new requirements where we used to uh, be able to utilize are reusable. So, where maybe Kaki, you can speak to that. Um I left you out of the last question, but where is this discussion around COVID nineteen? How is that impacting our use of reusables?
1: Well, I I tend to like take whatever the government says with a with a bit of Skeptical thinking. Um, I'm seeing the CDC come out with these types of guidelines um, under the guise that, you know, who's really pulling the strings are the companies that make all of those single use plastics and whatnot, pushing that narrative through the CDC uh, because they currently have control over these types of organizations thanks to the existing um, administration and power. Uh, so, <laughs> we, we knew this was coming, um, we simply need to more or less get the data that we can trust that isn't tainted and be able to come back with a response, but in, in the short term, hey, as environmentalists, we don't want to come out and, and put anybody at risk from a health standpoint. Like like. In the end, we're telling people to stop using plastic because eventually it could kill us all from just pollution and ruin in the oceans and, and then the, the tragic dominoes that happen after that. Um, so if right now we were to come out and say, don't listen to the CDC, it wouldn't be the greatest PR strategy for, for environmentalists to, to be advocating. So I, for, from my standpoint, it was more or less, I saw this coming. Um, let's let's allow time to go by and come back with a aligned response that more or less proves that this action is not based on science and based more on political motivations to uh, reduce the environmental, environmental movement's power over things like plastics.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because that was the question that just came in from Shannon and saying, yeah, we we found so far that they're saying that the virus itself actually lives on plastics uh, longer than it does other surfaces. Um, and I saw DeRay, you unmuted. So did you want to follow up on that as well, or follow up on Kaki's point?
2: Yeah, I mean, just from the local perspective, so the city and county of Honolulu had kind of signaled that they were going to recommend all businesses use single-use plastics, especially in food establishments, um, and there was a contingent of us that were saying, no, there's, this is not based in science, as Shannon mentioned, um, in the studies that have been done, um, and that reusables are completely safe, especially given that the Department of Health require, they already have such stringent standards on specific sanitation methods that all restaurants already follow. Um, So reusables are completely safe and always have been from viruses because they're like sanitized in a three-step system. And um, so we were able to deter the city from formally um, um, recommending single-use plastics, but there is definitely this industry lobby effort um, nationally not just in the plastics industry but a lot of other industries are trying to leverage this as a way um, to get regulations relieved that we're seeing the fishing industry locally do that now to trump to get rid of the marine protected areas we just won recently so i think we need to be really cautious and aware of how much time and money these groups have and they just yeah because of all the time and resources they have they just spend all of that time like trying to do reverse things that are good and we're just trying to put out true factual information um, that we don't need to be afraid of reusables and that there are disposable alternatives that are better than plastic already available.
0: did you have another thought on that that you were Uh, it
1: it was it was more in in reference to that ad that the American Chemistry Council put out of the local guy with the uh, styrofoam packaging. And it was like the biggest affront to the Hawaiian community that I could see, you know, like we were talking about uh, arguably the most sustainable from from an environmental standpoint, culture ever to exist on earth. And saying that the food is best served in the most unsustainable Product around like I'm really hoping that we can keep the momentum on Bill 40 and avoid any of this potential backlash towards the bill because I was really looking forward. I, it's it's funny. I, I have a friend that's on right now from Australia, Cam, who really loves Wendy's, and I I wanted to take him and show him that we can get food in in non-plastic coated stuff. I was like, dude, you can we can do this in Hawaii. You can do it in Australia. I want to get him a plate lunch, but he really loves Wendy's.
0: I hope we can I hope we can get Cam a sustainably sourced and packaged Wendy's meal when the I'm coronavirus sure. is lifted. Okay. You know, in talking about that, I kind of wanted to also pivot back to Marissa, um, you know, coming from the youth voice. I want to talk about the youth voice, but I also, before that, I did have a question, you know, for you taking born and raised in Hawaii, taking the lessons that you've taken from here and taking them to California, what's that been like?
3: Yeah, um, I think like grow well, growing up on an island, you kind of see systems on a smaller scale and you can see that like your resources all come from somewhere and the stuff you use after you're done with it all has to go somewhere. And I think you think about it more when you're living on an island because you have to like, you, you kind of think about those things, you know, like, where's all our food coming from? There's not farms everywhere. Like it must be coming from somewhere. And like, where's all our trash going? I don't see landfills everywhere. So like, it must be going somewhere. So I think like growing up on the island, I thought about these things a lot more. And I thought about like the systems in place that are providing all of these things that I'm using and providing for all of the activities that I do and everything. Um, and you, you grow up learning about ahupua'a and um, you learn about the Hawaiian culture and how they could sustain a large population of people on these islands um, without needing to import all this food and without needing to export all this trash or burn it. Um, and so taking those ideas with me when I left to go to college was really interesting because I noticed that a lot of people didn't necessarily have that mindset or were aware of those things. Um, a lot of people don't necessarily think about where their food comes from or where their trash goes. Uh, uh, people don't even know what a watershed is. And so growing up in Hawaii, like that's something you think about all the time. Like people always talk to you about the connection between Mako to Makai and the connection, um, the connections all around you, but they don't always, they, people aren't always aware of that um, on the mainland, I think. and so. It was really interesting, especially going into a major um, environmental management and protection, where I I thought everyone would be aware of all these things, but they're not. And I think that that kind of speaks to our education system too, um, and how how people are being taught from a young age. Um, sometimes that information might be influenced by um, these like the messages that industries are putting out and stuff too, and like there's not enough education on um sustainability from a young age I think so that's just like a really interesting thing that I saw and also just awareness of like indigenous cultures too so like growing up in Hawaii you learn about Hawaiian culture um, I'm assuming in most sco- in all schools um, I learned a lot about it and I took that knowledge with me and I learned about the Chumash people on the San Luis Obispo coastline um, when I went to college and I'm minoring in indigenous studies so I'm like invested in learning about these things but I don't think that everyone is and in several indigenous studies classes I've taken people like aren't even aware of the history of colonial oppression in our country and I think that that's something really important for people to understand and it ties into this issue really well too because these systems that were created by colonists are still the systems that we live under today and are what cause marginalization of different people and different communities and it ties into the black lives matter movement it ties into plastic pollution it ties into the oil industry it ties into all of these different issues and there's so so much of an interconnectedness and i think people need to be aware of that in order to really like understand all these issues
0: marissa can you run for president in like 2030 like how old do you have to be that was great uh (laughs) But I love what you said, because I think it also goes back to what we've been dealing with, um, with COVID-19 here in Hawaii, right, is we know our food systems are broken. We know plastic pollution is an issue. We know that we have to have more localized systems. We know our parents, or your parents, and, and my husband are working within the utility, right? My husband works on the renewables. They've seen renewables increase because all of a sudden the hotels have come off the grid because the hotels aren't open, they're not running. Um, but we import diesel, right, to run, run our electricity. So we know that all of these systems are broken and that we have to shift to these more localized systems. And we've talked and we talk and we talk about it. And it's not just here, it's, it's everywhere. And so I feel like COVID-19 has forced us to actually take action to really try to be more localized, because we're realizing that it's not that it's it's not if it's when, um, and I think it also comes back. This was something that was brought up in the documentary, um, but I think it also comes back to, again to this whole plastic pollution, right, and to this issue of of what's driving it and how it's all connected. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, I don't know, Dere I, I know you um, also have a strong, not that we want to get into food systems, but just localized systems, right? I, I feel I feel your energy over there through Zoom, and I'm like, Dere's ready to say something. So I, I just wanted
2: to say one thing about colonial food, and I'm really glad Marissa put that into context in such an educated way, but just that, uh, indigenous food is packaged in things like banana leaves and colonial food is packaged in plastic and i think it's just really important to recognize um and and for us to disidentify ourselves from this colonial food system and economic system we've inherited and really look to hawaiian and indigenous cultures who didn't have waste who don't even I I think someone told me once that the Hawaiian language doesn't even have a word for trash, right? And so it's so important for us to look to these cultures and learn from them so that we don't get bought by this ad that says, don't take away my plate lunch and say, that's not my plate lunch. That's not my styrofoam package. That's something that was pushed onto me by this culture that I didn't create myself. And how do we create a culture that is in alignment with our values and the vision we have for a, a sustainable future. So I think that's, that's just really key.
0: Thanks, Dore. Um, and I do think that's such an important point. And I wanna kind of on that point, pivot to this idea of extended producer, I almost wrote consumer, extended producer responsibility, because I think that is something that hasn't been in the general public's vernacular. Uh, And we were talking about this a little before we jumped on. You know, when I first got involved in the plastic pollution issue, I was like, okay, I'm going to be on the beach. I'm going to collect that. I'm going to pick it up. And then I met Kahi and he's like, we're supposed to hold the companies responsible. And I was like, we can do that. That's like a thing. So I was wondering Kahi, because you have been a part of even my journey into this um, and this was brought up, but, but expand on this. Like, what does, what does that look like? Because right now consumers, I don't think a lot of people understand this, our recycling is taxpayer funded. Like we're paying for all of this. We're, we're all bearing the burden of these very large, very big multinational corporations from what's on our beaches to how we're disposing of it. Um, so I was wondering, Yakahi, yeah, if you could speak a little more to what is extended producer responsibility and not only what is it, how does it actually work? How do we actually, does it work Can we implement it? What does that look like?
1: All right. Um, Okay, so best to kind of talk an analogy term. So EPR, extended producer responsibility, for example, um, is when a consumer were to go to a cash register with a candy bar and buy the candy bar, uh, you know, they're really buying the candy inside the wrapper but from the producer standpoint they're buying the whole thing they're buying the packaging and the candy bar so when we're done consuming the product we get rid of the the plastic waste and uh, the company has already made their money so once the once the transaction happens they have no responsibility responsibility left with their product like it, they're done with it and now that whole product is now the responsibility of the person that bought it, the consumer. So when they throw it away, you know, the person that pays for that, it's the taxpayer money to deal with the waste management. And it's also the environment that has to pay for for it, for in a, you know, the, the plastic get into the oceans, the food chain, et cetera. So EPR is saying that the responsibility should extend beyond the register for the life of the product. And the product doesn't just include the consumable part, but also the packaging. So what we're trying to drive is that for there to be a sustainable future, we need to have companies exercise extended producer responsibility that has them remain responsible for their product for the entire life cycle of it which then means that they design the end of the life of their product into it so that they can make sure that they recover that product and it doesn't end up in the waste bin or in the oceans, et cetera, because it's gonna cost them more money to deal with it then than it is for them to just simply design an end of life situation that has that product either go into a compostable situation where it biodegrades fully or they're able to recover it and make more of the product that they're making in the first place.
0: So are there like actual, because I feel like you've probably had these conversations, like examples of where this could, this does work or are we holding the Coca-Cola's, the Pepsi's, the Unilever's, are we holding them accountable right now or is that the, the next step we have to take?
1: We are not holding anybody accountable. There's like, there's like maybe a few of us that practice conscious consumerism, but it's not happening fast enough. And I really don't think that we can have a consumer-led um, revolution. It, it's I, 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 well, I have a little more hope right now. Um, but but, talk to me like a couple of months ago. I'd say there's like a consumer-led revolution to to plastics isn't going to happen. I really think what needs to happen is utilize capitalism to affect environmental change, where it's, if we can figure out how we can prove to these businesses that it's more lucrative to save the oceans than to destroy them, then those companies are going to be like, I want to be first to market with a product that is not going to hurt the oceans. I'm going to, make my entire marketing strategy focused on a perfectly designed product that a consumer can can have zero guilt in purchasing and actually almost feel like they're giving back to the environment by purchasing it. So then it becomes a corporate led change. And then also it makes it easier for the consumer to buy in. Um, so it's like a, a meritage of consumer led and, uh, and, 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 Hey, this is Zoe Zanfeli, everybody. So this is the future. Um, So it's really about consumer-led change, but it's even more about corporate-led change. Honey, Daddy's on a Zoom call. Say hi really quick, and then you gotta go. Say hi. Hi, Zoe. Okay, okay, gotta go. I'll be out, I'll be out in a little bit and we'll play. So. Where, where were we, EPR, right? That, what was the question? See, she always makes me lose my, my thought. She like jumps into these meetings. I can't lock my door. So sorry about
0: that. No, that was good. No, and actually it was what you were, were saying was making me think about even just the pressure that, that we can apply. Um, at UH Maui College, they're going plastic free and they told it was Dasani. I think Dasani is owned by Coke. Coca-Cola. Yeah. Am I thinking about that right? Um, And they said, we want, we cannot have plastic bottles because we're going plastic free. And they're like, no, no can. And they're like, no, well, then we're not going to buy from you. And they actually turned out that they are now at the UH Maui college campus. You can buy a canned water, you can attend can. Um, So showing that even just the college level was able with, their buying power to demand a shift and a change into something that, like I haven't seen a can of water, uh, so it is interesting. The like you said a couple months ago, you weren't not encouraged by consumer led revolution, but I like that. I wrote that down. I'm gonna put that above my bed tonight. Consumer led revolution. Did you have more <laughs> thoughts on that, Kahi? <laughs>
1: um. Well, I, you know, the, the, one of the main reasons I work for Parlay for the Oceans Now is because I recognize the importance of EPR circular economies and, and eliminating planned obsolescence. Um, so I I think that, like, we have to tackle these issues from all different types of angles. And for me personally, my focus is with the corporations.
3: Oh, Marissa. Um, I was just going to say, when thinking about like extended producer responsibility, it's um, interesting, Kahi kind of touched on this, but basically the only way that these big corporations are making a significant profit off of like making these plastic products is through capitalizing on externalities. So like they're placing the cost of these, the environmental and social costs of these products to other people rather than taking responsibility for it themselves and that's what's causing marginalized communities to be to bear the, the biggest burden of these products and allowing these companies to make such a big profit and so making them responsible for the pollution that they're causing could help solve some of these problems and you can kind of see at least like a start to those solutions in other pollution areas. So if you look at like carbon taxes like and like carbon trading systems, um, that's like a really interesting way to think about like market-based incentives for making producers responsible for the pollution that they're causing and making it um, like in order to maximize their profit under like with like carbon taxing on them. Um, it's actually better for them to do something better for the environment so that they don't have to pay the price of the pollution that they're creating. And so I think that there's like some really cool opportunities um, in terms of making producers more responsible for the pollution that they're creating and um, pushing, like pushing for that and having consumers lead a revolution towards that is really like empowering to think about because sometimes these problems are pretty like daunting and overwhelming and individuals don't feel like they can really do anything about them because corporations have so much control. I'm glad you brought that up because when
0: you look at like a plastic water bottle, it may be way cheaper than a glass bottle, right? But when you add in all the externalities to the impacts, environmental impacts, social impacts, health impacts of that plastic bottle, maybe that plastic bottle, one bottle of water should be $20 instead of a dollar. Duray take it away.
2: I just wanted to share from the solution side that I think it's Germany and several other European countries that do charge, um, or they have a, like how we have our high five program in Hawaii, they have a, a 25 cent buyback. I mean, it varies from place to place, but this was featured in a documentary I saw recently. And the 25 cent buyback works by returning your bottles back to the grocery store, where there's like a vending machine where you return the bottle and you end up getting like cash. Cause if you have You know, it's you can get five dollars. Now I'm gonna test my own math. You can get five dollars for 20 bottles, and so that adds up much more quickly than a five-cent program would. And the company is responsible for taking those items back. They have to be the recycler and the processor. So that burden doesn't fall upon a a third party or the municipality. And it's not um, vulnerable to the risks of the market, which is why we're seeing our recycling industry collapse globally is because the market has been so volatile for so many years. Um, And so I think that's where we need to move towards is say, we don't care about the pressures we're receiving to say EPR is not feasible, because it works in Europe and many countries. Um, And California is taking the lead on proposing a law that would put a one cent um, tax or one cent fee on every plastic packaged item. I think the caveat is that it's on items that are not recyclable or compostable. and And then that money would go towards supporting um, new zero waste programs so that we can have more of a circular economy. So we're we're hopeful that that will pass, given that California tends to be the pioneer for these kinds of things. Um and we're, yeah, we'll be looking to them for more guidance on EPR. So it's possible. I mean, I think America's a little bit behind compared to some of those more progressive countries, but, Um, yeah, I mean, they need to take responsibility. And I always use the analogy of the milkman model. And it's really like the person, the milkman who dropped off your milk, picks it back up. It's really that simple. They all did it back in the day. There's no reason they can't do it today, except that they don't wanna spend more money. But when you're making billions upon billions of dollars in profit, um, there's a point where you're just being too greedy and you need to give back. To some of the problems that you're causing,
0: Aki, you want to weigh in on that?
1: Uh, yeah, I I can chime in quickly. It's it's like yeah, they are they are making billions and billions and billions of dollars, but there's never going to be a a, a uh, altruistic um, <laughs> bone coming out of them um, to to stop that flow of money. Um, it's really going to come from being forced from um, you know from governments to make that change or the consumer um, as so long as we have this this economy based on on uh, you know shareholder returns that we're going to be stuck in this cycle, um, we can't expect um, them to do it out of the good of their heart it, it's got to be forced upon them by shareholders the consumers or governments or all of us all at once um, so. In the end it really comes down to where where the money's coming from and where you're spending your money and where you're investing your money so um i i wish that corporations were were altruistic and had feelings because according to our government you know corporations are people so you would think they would have feelings but they they don't they don't seem to
2: they're people without hearts (laughs) But I guess I will I will add that. I think what Marissa was pointing to about the carbon tax is so important because plastic is made from oil and oil is incredibly cheap, partly because it's heavily subsidized by the US government. So when you remove all of these corrupt factors, we can actually get to a place where oil is as expensive as it should be to account for the externalities, like the social and environmental externalities. And then plastic wouldn't be competitive anymore on the market as a packaging option. And I think we really need to grapple with that reality, not only in the terms of plastic, but also in the food industry and how the food industry, um, the junk food industry and the meat industry are the ones that are heavily subsidized by government. So this is the same issue in every, it's the same corruption in every issue you face. So we really, it's always back to the money um, and, and how the government, controls the market in the wrong way. And if they control the market in the right way, we can really get to some positive solutions.
0: And that's why I'm thankful for these silver linings that we've started to see with COVID-19, right? And again, that shift back to our localized systems, back potentially to the milkman, back to um, you know our local farmers and investing in, in our local systems because that right there is gonna cut down a lot. But I'm glad that I'm glad we had i actually had that written our subsidy so i'm glad that you guys have touched on that and with nine minutes to go uh, i i hope that everyone is tuned in again i think everyone who's tuned in is probably already a part of this conversation understands this issue of plastic but i hope what this conversation has done is taken it from the straw bands, which we know are are it's all Tight in like it's important but taking it to that next level right where this is much bigger than straws this is a much bigger issue with a lot of different factors and in saying that then it kind of gets back even to Marissa's point of now I'm re-overwhelmed you know so I guess in these last couple minutes we have just each of you guys sharing I did write down vote because I think we all do need to vote and shift who's in office and representing us, especially at that federal level and representing interests uh, versus the rest of us. And, um, but yeah, what, what? not that you have to put a nice shiny like bow on it. You can be honest with us, but what do we need to do? What are some things that we can do? What are the avenues so we can uh, try to really address this in a
1: meaningful way?
0: And I'm gonna go Kahi, Marissa, then derek cause that's who I'm seeing on my screen in that order.
1: Hey, uh, am I? Can you hear me? Yeah, you can hear me. Um, I'm personally extremely disenfranchised with our entire political system. Um, my man got screwed two election cycles in a row. Um, so I, I don't like Democrat, Republican, you know, they're all being powered by the same corporations. And it's just, it's just heart wrenching when we finally had a chance to really Unveil that and, and see real change from from a top down level. Most of that is, is lost. Um, so I I I have to say, like, we should never be having to choose between the lesser of two evils. And uh, um, I I didn't realize we were really talking about this, but like, in all honesty, right now I'm like, we need we need, we need some. We need to hit. We're like we're like drug addicts. Like we have to hit rock, bo- like super rock bottom, before we we wake the hell up, and that's where we're headed. And uh, like, I'm, I'm, I I wish I could give some some silver linings and some glimmer of hope, but like I don't, from a political standpoint, I don't see much. Um, and uh, like, it's it's just. I don't know. I, I hope maybe that the rest of you can bring me, bring me some hope and, and not the hope in the form of that. Hey, some of these, some of these people that we do like are gonna be on some committees where they're gonna be more or less have gags put on them still. So I'm, I I will leave it at that, except, okay. I do have some hope, right? And was it's not- say, an- I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't have said the
0: word vote. <laughs> maybe you can take that piece out.
1: But No, I, I still think we should vote, you know, like, like, we shouldn't we shouldn't be forced to vote blue no matter who but um we also should have to understand the ramifications of our choice of of how we vote in this upcoming election Uh, and maybe maybe we do need um, to hit extreme rock bottom and and uh, and whatnot um but i see hope i do see hope in things like what's happening right now with the with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I've actually had online conversations with people and I've been able to actually convince them, like we're talking about staunch far right leaning um, ideals that I've been able to like at least kind of get people to start to understand the perspective of being a person of color and, and understanding like how I can help them contextualize their place on earth as a white person or even a mixed person and the the hope i'm seeing is i see people actually starting to have the introspection needed for us to get towards change and i think that's extremely hopeful like i would have never thought i'd be able to get through to some of these people but they're right now they're listening they they're starting to see that the this house of cards that they built up is really not really with a strong foundation and it's crumbling and it's as a result of their their un like, you know their, their strength in their beliefs and now that it's all breaking down they're like wow maybe what i believed was wrong and at the same time me i'm seeing things like hey i didn't see that perspective like we all have to realize like the more information we get our our ideals can change and the way that we view needs to continue to evolve. So that gives me hope.
0: I like that. Um, I think you totally hit it. I think people are so much more open right now to receiving even people who thought they were already there and realizing we're not there, right? And, And I do think the plastic pollution issue, it is also a very personal journey. Right? Like it, it does happen on an individual level. We've got to realize that. And it's, it's opening yourself up to looking at your lifestyle, not just with plastic, but it's like, do I really need that new shirt? Do I really need this? It's, it's like going back to that consumerism too, right? So I agree, Kahi. I think that people are much more open and receptive. I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, Marissa,
3: what's your hope? What can we do? Yeah, I, I like what Kahi was saying. Um... I also would just add on like like kind of just what we're seeing with this whole Black Lives Matter movement and how many people are showing their willingness to listen at this time and to do something about it and to like accept that maybe they don't know everything but that it's time to start listening and to learn what maybe, what they haven't been aware of this whole time and to become aware of those things um, and to reflect And I feel like COVID on top of all of this, like all of the racial injustice issues that are at the forefront of the news and everything right now, um, they're both providing opportunities for us to reflect and really think about what our role is in our communities and in the world and um, how we're living our lives. And I think that for me, hope really comes from like just the like the conversations that I have with other people and um like always being able to like keep our minds open to like learning new things um I think that educating ourselves and each other is a really important like first step to making change happen because if people don't know what's going on and don't know what they can do then nothing's going to happen but once we start having the hard conversations and um start listening to maybe voices that we haven't been listening to, Uh, I think that's where change can start to happen. Um, And I would also say, this is something that Doshi always says from Algalita, he was in the film, he always says we should be welcoming people in and not calling them out. Um, And I think that that's something to keep in mind always too, is that like, we're all at different places of understanding um, of this issue, of racial injustice issues, of any issues. Um, we all are at different like points of yeah, we're all at different levels of understanding. And so recognizing that and not calling people out for not knowing enough, but calling them in and um, educating them and welcoming them in and having conversations with them and letting them know that they're an important part of the movement too, because Um, we need diverse people involved and we need everyone's voice um, and we need entire communities to be on board in order to like make actual change happen. So I think that that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Thank you,
0: Marissa. And DeRay, what's your hope? Where do we go from here?
2: I would say that there are so many of us who want the same thing like there's enough of us who want the same thing that we can achieve it. And we just have to organize around that shared vision. And I do really feel like 2020 has been crazy. I mean, this year is gonna go down in history, no question about it. And the fact that we started out with COVID-19 with this global reset, most of my friends are unemployed at home, you know, taking in information. And then this racial justice um movement has popped up at a time when everyone is at home looking at their phone, watching these videos, reading the news. Um, and I, and I really feel like it's connected. That's really what sparked this movement. I've lived in Hawaii for ten years, and historically, I've saw an average of 300 people show up to any demonstration. And the fact that we had 10,000 people show up on Saturday in Honolulu is, I mean, it's insane. And so I really feel like we're at a moment where, regardless of whether we can see the final sustainable world that we're at a place where we've hit like this this peak awareness and maybe we're not at peak awareness necessarily but we're at like a peak openness to discomfort and people are so pained and uncomfortable with what's happening that they're like humbled and i think that in itself is is such a good place for us to start talking to each other organizing sharing social media, like all these things. And so I don't know where kind of we end up, but I do know like this is a incredible opportunity to reset our consciousness um, and reconnect with each other in a way that that can be more radical and progressive because we need to move fairly quickly to solve our global problems. So that's my perspective. I love it. And you know, we are
0: just on time and I really appreciate I want to say I think this has been This conversation and where we've gone, all the places over the last hour and a half have probably been one of the most insightful, meaningful conversations I've gotten to have about plastic pollution. Um, And the fact that we are able to have this on Zoom uh, and connect with probably more people than we could have, and now it's going to live forever um, and people can watch it over and over, I think also just goes to the fact that we're able to do things now that we wouldn't have thought about doing, you know, three months ago, four months ago. Uh, You guys are all amazing. And again, I really appreciate the opportunity to seriously dive into some of these issues that aren't talked about in the plastic pollution movement as much as they should be. Uh, And I hope actually in like, three or six months, we can all check back in and do this again and see like where we're at. Did anything shift? Cause Kahi's like if we're at, when we get to rock bottom I'm like, I feel like we are at rock bottom right now. So I don't. I hope we don't add too much further to go but it would be really neat to check back in and, and see what our perspectives are, our six months down the road selves. Like if we could look back and wish we had told ourselves this, but just very, very thankful for all of you, all of your insights. Um, and Dore, I don't know if you want any last words to, to wrap it up just from the O'ahu chapter because you guys worked hard
2: to put this on. Um, I would just defer to Kahi, follow Kahi on TikTok at Plastic Surf because apparently he's dancing and that sounds fun. Um, but we're also, we're at Surf Fighter O'ahu. Um, so please, yeah, please join us, Sustainable co Hawaii anything happening locally in your community. Um, we all, it's all hands on deck for all of these important issues. So just get involved any way you can. Okay. Mahalo, well, hello guys. Take care. Be
0: safe. Continue. What are we doing tonight, everyone? We're consumer-led revolution. Just dream about that. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you guys.